Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. My name is James D. Fiore, and this is Black Bulb. Today is Earth Day, and I wanted to make sure that I did something that was viable, something that was worthwhile on Earth Day. And I can't imagine having a better guest than my guest today. He is a public intellectual, he's a professor of linguistics, a political activist, and a social critic. And he's also written more books than I have read, including this one. Climate Crisis and the Global Green New Deal. And he is my guest today, and his name is Noam Chomsky. Noam, how are you, buddy? Pretty well. Good. Um, thank you for coming today. I, I really wanted to have someone on that knew a lot more than I did about, about the environment. Um, I'm not an academic. I'm a, high, I'm a high school graduate and a college dropout, but I do a lot of reading. And I wanted to start this show today, if it's okay with you, to discuss what happened decades ago when things started to look a little bit uh, bleak as far as awareness levels of the environment. Um, I seem to remember institutions like the Chamber of Commerce, petroleum industry lobbyists, they began a campaign that seemed to work. At the time, I think in the late 90s, it was something like 30, only 32% of people believed in man-made climate change. I was wondering if you could tell me how far back we set ourselves by having propagandists tell us that global warming was a hoax. We may have set ourselves as far back as extinction. That's not an exaggeration. Uh, there has been a corporate campaign for 50 years now to try to prevent uh, concern about the imminent threat of global warming go back in the history by the 1970s the uh, leading specialists on global warming the ones who were carrying out the most intensive investigations had the most detailed results were the fine scientists of the uh, energy corporations ExxonMobil, others, they were investigating this in great detail, sending messages back to the management saying, we continue to use fossil fuels, it's going to destroy 
organized life on earth. Well, the messages were filed in uh, drawers. Let's forget about it. That became difficult by 19, by 1988, when James Hansen, the renowned geophysicist, testified before Congress. And it was widely publicized testimony in which he warned about the grave threats of uh, global warming to organized life on Earth. Couldn't be kept quiet any longer. A lot of publicity. So the corporations uh, gathered their PR experts who advised them to follow the same script that had been followed by the tobacco companies, the lead companies, the asbestos companies, when it was discovered that they were murdering people. And you could, the technique that was used to deflect any action was not to deny the facts. If you deny the facts, you're quickly refuted. So, so doubt. Say, well, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. We ought to think about it more. There, case of climate, you know, we haven't figured out everything about sunspots. Uh, maybe there's cloud cover. Of case of lead, you know, could be other factors. Uh, meanwhile, let's just keep growing the economy as fast as possible. Small footnote: increasing profits as fast as possible. But we don't mention that part. Let's just grow the economy as fast as possible. We'll have a richer, better society. And maybe later on, if it ever turns there's anything to this, we can get to it. That's the technique. It's worked very well. One of the effects is, and it, it's part of a much broader campaign to distrust science. It's very important for the corporate sector, has been for 60, 70 years, to get people to distrust science. Why should we trust what these liberal elitists are telling us? I mean, I've talked to people who were influenced by this once had a meeting with uh, paint contractors they, in Massachusetts. And their position, which is kind of understandable, is, well, you know, we know perfectly well that lead paint is the best way to paint a house, or it's far better than anything else. Then this bureaucrat comes from Washington wearing a suit. He's never painted a house in his life, doesn't know anything about paint. And he tells us, well, some scientist said uh, it harms children. Why should I believe him? You know, this is, he's trying to take away my business. Because if I can't use lead paint, I'm going to use my, my small business will collapse. And, this, and the goal of the corporate sector is to fortify these ideas, saying, yeah, why should you listen to scientists, just a bunch of liberal elitists sitting up there in Washington uh, wearing suits? That's the campaign. I mean, you're familiar with it, I'm sure. So it's basically a campaign that says distrust science because they don't know anything. In fact, if you listen to the scientists, they disagree about all kinds of things, which is quite true. Science is an honest enterprise. You don't make claims that aren't true. If it's just probability that something's true, you say so, it might be wrong.
that's the nature of serious inquiry. So corporate propaganda can play on this, say, they're not even sure, you know, they have some doubts, why should you believe them and lose your business? So, and this is across the board. That's where a lot of the anti-vaccine movement comes from. Why should we believe the scientists? Then why should we trust the institutions? And there's a background. There's a good reason not to trust the institutions. They work against you. That's their role. The role of the institutions, particularly during the neoliberal period, the last 45 years or so, the goal of the institutions is to enrich the powerful in the corporate sector and to harm everyone else. So why should we pay any attention to them? Just trust in institutions makes some sense. Then this huge corporate campaign comes along and says, well, just live your life. And it plays out in public opinion and even in policy. Remember, there's one political party, Republican Party, which is dedicated to destruction of organized human life on Earth. Of course, that's not the way they put it. What they're dedicated to is abject service to the rich and the corporate sector. Every legislative proposal is designed to enrich the very rich and to strengthen the corporate sector and harm everyone else. One of the consequences of that is object to anything that might deal with the climate problem. That's a kind of consequence. It's not, we would like to destroy the world for our grandchildren. That just happens to be a consequence of our policy. Okay, you see it everywhere. Take a look at HR1, the first bill that the Republican House passed, top priority. Nice rhetoric about improving lives by making energy more accessible and so on. If you read about it and think for five seconds, it's saying, let's enrich the fossil fuel industries. That's HR1. There's a very interesting background to that, which tells us a lot about how American politics works. But this is not built into the Republican Party. In fact, if you go back as recently as 2008, not that far back, uh, John McCain was running for president on the Republican ticket. He had a limited climate uh, change uh, plank in his program, not much, but something. And uh, congressional Repu Republicans were beginning to think, well, maybe, maybe we'll do something. The Koch, brother, Koch brothers conglomerate, this huge energy conglomerate, had been working for years to try to ensure that the Republicans would be a denialist party. And as soon as they got wind of this break, they launched a huge offensive, uh, bribing congressmen, threatening them with primary challenges, uh, massive lobbying campaigns, uh, astroturfing, you know, fake popular organizations, real juggernaut. The Republican Party turned on a dime. Ever since then, they have been 100% denialist, 100%. And that's how 
It's a striking example of how democracy functions in the United States. What is the motivation of the media to, I think I heard you mention on an interview from about 12 years ago, um, uh, how the media played along, played their role in this, when they would put on the front page on the New York Times, uh, the two sides, even though one side was represented by 98% of scientists and the other side was represented by maybe a, a weatherman or something. So why did they play that role? And make it seem like they and 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 I guess this would kind of fall in line with manufacturing consent from the public, who then would look at it and think that this was an argument worth having. Well, first of all, we have to distinguish various segments of the media. So, the biggest cable channel, Fox News, doesn't barely even pretends to be a media source. That's an echo chamber for the far right. So they don't care. We just saw that in the brought to the fore in the Dominion suit. They don't care. It's not their job. They're not a media organization. The Murdoch media are a political organization working for the corporate sector and the very wealthy. So they become a kind of an echo chamber for right-wing politics. Now take a look at talk radio. The, all it's almost all in the hands of far right the far right corporate sector plenty of people listen to it you know, truck driver housewife turn on the radio what do you get how I many you get i often listen to it just out of curiosity if i'm stuck in a traffic jam it's unbelievable i mean it is so far right you can't even find it on the spectrum it's uh way and it's all told with the techniques are very interesting. Complete confidence. You listen to Rush Limbaugh, it sounds like, or, or the more recent guys, sounds like they know everything. Any question that comes up, they have a battery of people with computers somewhere who look something up and they come back and have a, I mean, they're actors basically, and they, they're actors trained to look extremely confident and sound, and of course, very supercilious so dismiss anything that questions their supreme knowledge and confidence well you know you're a housewife uh, doing the dishes you're a truck driver bored uh, you're somebody stuck in a traffic jam sounds convincing why shouldn't i believe it and in fact why should i believe these uh, liberals who uh, regard me as deplorable hillary clinton why should i listen to them you know uh, the Democratic Party doesn't do anything about it. They're not a party. Of, they used to be a party with uh, commitment to working people and the poor, but that's old hat. Uh, for the last, since Carter, they've been basically a party of affluent professionals, people like you and me who have time to be on the internet. Uh, that's who they are. So they're not countering it. Uh, they're not organizing on the ground. They, one of the major achievements of the Reagan administration, like Thatcher, when they launched the neoliberal attack, was the first move, destroy labor unions. Take a look, that was their first move. Made very good sense. You're going to launch an attack on the population, eliminate the means of defense, labor's 
historically been the main means of defense. It brings people together, their educational programs and so on. So it's an onslaught. And there's been very little resistance. There's popular resistance, but not much organized resistance. And it's been very effective. You look at polls among Republicans, a very small percentage, maybe 10, 15%, even think that global warming is an issue. Uh, higher among Democrats, but nowhere near as high as it should be. The, um, the Green New Deal, it, it was a political idea with AOC. It was the title of the book that you co-wrote with Robert Pollan. You've described the implementation of a Green New Deal as essential. What people like myself um, who, who lean on experts, scientists, to, to sort of tell us what these details are, I haven't heard much as far as what the details would actually look like in a global Green New Deal. Can you give me a sense or an idea of what that would look like? Well, if you take a look at the book and subsequent work that Bob Pollan has done sometimes together with me, sometimes alone, spelled out in extensive detail. Here's detailed, explicit proposals of what has to be done in order to meet minimal uh, conditions for preservation, even improvement of the environment, all feasible within a couple percentage of GDP, probably less than was spent in bailing out the financial institutions for their losses in the COVID crisis. It's all within range. I can't run through now, before, but if you take a look, it's spelled out in detail. Uh, Bob Pollan is in the lead in doing this work, but others have done similar analyses on similar assumptions. Jeffrey Sachs, the International Energy Association, they're all pretty much within the same range, some details here and there. Uh, in fact, there's a legislation, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez just reintroduced a couple of days ago, you wouldn't read it in the newspapers, reintroduced legislation that she and Ed Markey, Senator from Massachusetts, two of them had proposed a couple of years ago, they keep reintroducing it for a Green New Deal. Doesn't spell out all the details, but it's basically the same set of ideas. Doesn't even get discussed. Did you see it in the newspaper? No, I saw it on her Twitter. That's it. Who's interested in the fact that there's one legislative proposal that might save us from destruction? Not interesting. No, not even a footnote somewhere. Uh, when you talk, you I, you raised a good point about the media trying to be the liberal media trying to be balanced. You know, ninety-five percent of scientists say this. There's half a dozen guys who say that, so let's give them equal time. I mean, if you take a look at the correspondence, there are journalists for the Washington Post, the New York Times, who do do uh, careful reports on the latest scientific studies. So if you actually read the reports carefully, you can find out what's happening. But not many people do that. In fact, not many people even read the newspapers. You may look at headlines. 
Yeah. If you look at headlines, it's two sides. One side says it's very serious. The other side says we don't know. Uh, and then the corporate propaganda comes along about why believe science altogether. It's just a bunch of libtards, you know, and so on. So what you end up is a population that doesn't see that we're falling over the precipice. Now, it's not everybody. There are things that don't get reported that are important. Like take my friend Bob Pollan again. He and his group at the University of Massachusetts, the uh, Political Economy uh, Research Institute, Perry, have been working on the ground, organizing, working with miners in West Virginia, coal mining state. Uh, it's been pretty effective. They've gotten the United Mine Workers to approve a transition program in which miners would be helped as they should be to move towards other occupations to help develop a sustainable economy, better job, much better jobs, uh, better pay, much better life. And they're accepting it. Same has happened with unions in with their work, with unions in Ohio, extractive industries in California. Can be done. Of course, the same, the, the miners who are willing to accept the transition program in uh, West Virginia are represented in Congress by a coal baron, Joe Manchin, one of the biggest recipients of uh, fossil fuel funding. He's not going to allow it. Well, that means you have to start organizing the Democratic Party or somebody would have to start organizing on the ground. It's not going to happen without them. That's what labor unions used to be for. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> a lot of this touches uh, the concept of building a new society. Um, there's a quote. I don't remember who said the quote. I'm, I'm, I bet you you remember. Um, if power is in the hands of the governed and the governed lose their, and the governed lose their function of giving consent, how they are governed, can we successfully build a new society? That quote, um, I presume you're quoting from David Hume, That's right. 350 years ago, mm -hmm. first great work on uh, what we now call political science, foundations of the theory of foundation principles of, of government, basic principles of government, some title like that. He opens the, the one of the great philo modern philosophers of the Enlightenment, conservative, incidentally, not by no means left. He opens this major tract, first paragraph, by posing a paradox. He says he's struck by the easiness with which the, govern the governors can subdue the governed. This is, why is this the case? Power is in the hands of the governed. If they use it, the governors don't have the power. They could be overthrown. So how come the mass of the governed allow themselves to be ruled by the governors? He says, the only explanation is consent. Doesn't go into it, but it's an early version of what Walter Lippmann later called manufacture of consent. 
the governors have devised techniques to induce the governed to consent to their subjugation to the masters. Adam Smith wrote about it at the same time. He was a friend of Hume's about the same thing. Uh, later it was developed in Marxist theories of false consciousness, Gramsci's concepts of uh, hegemonic common sense imposed by power systems, a liberal democratic theory in the United States, Walter Lippmann, uh, Harold Doswell, Reinhold Niebuhr, the other great liberal commentators on liberal democracy discuss the same thing, except they praise it. There's a difference in attitudes. They praise it, like for Lippmann, major leading intellectual of the 20th century, a liberal, of course, Wilson, Roosevelt, Kennedy, liberal, very influential figure. For him, manufacture of consent is, as he described it, a new art in the practice of democracy. We can use it to ensure that democracy functions properly. How does democracy function properly? When the general population stays out of our hair, their role is to be spectators, not participants. They're supposed to show up every couple of years, push a button, which they choose one or another of the options that we present to them, then go home, look at their video games, not at his time, but do something else. Uh, he was a member of the, uh, what was called the Creole Commission, the commission that Woodrow Wilson set up, first state propaganda commission. It was designed to convert a pacifist population into raving anti-German fanatics to drive the country into support for Wilson's war. It was a pacifist country. They didn't want to be involved in European wars when they had to be shifted. And the Creole Commission was one of the ways of doing it. It was very successful. Lippmann was very impressed by their success. Another person who was successful, impressed on the same commission was Edward Bernays who went on to become one of the founders of the huge public relations industry. He called it engineering of consent. He said this is a central element of democracy is for us, the smart guys, uh, to engineer the consent of the masses. They're too stupid and ignorant to know what's good for them. So we have to uh, engineer consent. That's the huge public relations industry. Most of it is devoted to commercial advertising, which, which is a huge mode of trying to induce people, as the business press put it a century ago, got to induce people to focus on the superficial things in life, like uh, uh, consumer consumption, you know, whatever. Let them focus on that but stay out of affairs of state. That's our business, not, their, not the business of the public. That's liberal democratic theory. You go to the right wing, it's much harsher, okay? The liberals are much more interesting because they show the limits of uh, 
what can be imagined within the dominant, the reigning uh, uh, doctrinal system. And uh, take Reinhold Niebuhr, who's revered as the, uh, called the theologian of the liberal establishment. His view was that people are stupid and ignorant. We therefore have to impose on them necessary illusions title of one of my other books on this topic, and uh, potently, uh, emotionally potent oversimplifications. That'll keep them in line. And that's understood across the board uh, when uh, we have to, you know, when the United States was building up to the Cold War back in the late 40s, it was understood that the population didn't want this. So as one leading figure put it, we have to scare the hell out of people. It's the only way we can do it. Now you got to scare the hell out of people about China taking over the world or Putin conquering Europe or whatever the next thing is. One thing or another to try to keep the people in line, passive, obedient, uh, paying attention to something else. Uh, it's just overwhelming, you know, it's the, it's the way the fundamental institutions of society work. And you can understand it. Why should you allow people to think? It's a terrible idea. Uh, people think they might think about David Hume's question. Why should we accept the rule of the governors? Don't want people to think about that. So let's work out all sorts of ways to divert people. For the current Republican Party, it's a holy writ. Ever since Nixon, they've understood very well that they can't win an election by coming to people with their actual policies. You can't get votes if you come and say, look, I represent the very rich corporate sector I want to set policies that are going to enrich them and stab you in the back. Please vote for me. That be a hell of a bumper sticker, though. No. So you have to turn their attention to something else, cultural issues and so on. It's the whole nature of the Republican Party. You mentioned the cost of the pandemic. You mentioned the financial crisis. If I may throw um, Middle Eastern wars into that bag as well, and I may be oversimplifying this, but... If you're, I, and it, it uses sphere as well, the weapons of mass destruction, but from an environmental perspective, I know that the military industrial complex and military uh, conflict around the world is one of the largest pollutants. In fact, I think, and I could be wrong about this, um, well, I won't make the claim, but I, I know that the American military just on its own creates more pollution for the world than a lot of countries do, which I find to be staggering. But I was wondering, if we if we peg the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war at three trillion, let's just say, is that money because it's federal dollars that could have been used for environmental programs instead? I'm sorry, is I didn't that, get the last point. I'm sorry. The, 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 let's say we peg the, the price tag at uh, Afghanistan and Iraq at around three trillion dollars. It, it, the, the environmental impact that those conflicts have had uh, on, the, on the planet are, are probably not uh, calculated yet. Uh, a lot of it is still being, um, the inventory is still being done. But is that money, 
could that could that because it's federal dollars could that be could that have been bookmarked for environmental programs instead i'm just trying to figure out how the government decides what they want to throw their money at well, the actually a majority of the funds that can be used that available funds go to the military in one form or another i mean there are things you can't touch like automatic expenses of the government paying the debt and so on but when you look at the parts that there's some choice over in fact the majority go to the military so yes you could cut that back sharply and you'd have plenty of money for what's needed to develop a sustainable economy but try to touch it uh, remember the what's called the military industrial complex is pretty much the core of the industrial and financial system it includes the banks that lend to it manufacturers i mean there are some straight military manufacturers but they use things that are produced by the rest of the industrial system so very tightly linked and the military isn't there the military in the united states fortunately is under civilian control military doesn't set policy so far might change but uh, they are have been under civilian control and uh, they're perfectly happy to have gifts given to them naturally but it's the civilian authorities who are determining it sometimes in some cases even over the objections of the military so Let's take one thing of enormous importance that Dan Ellsberg and other strategic analysts have been talking about for years. Uh, the what's called our deterrent system, you know, nuclear deterrent system is a triad. Uh, one part of it is land-based missiles. Every strategic analyst knows that the land-based missiles are a threat to the United States. They serve no purpose except to be a threat to the United States for a very simple reason. They are land-based, fixed. Any adversary knows exactly where they are. That means if there's any threat anywhere in the world, and it looks like maybe a war is coming, you've got to fire them. It's called use them or lose them. If you don't use them, they're gone. There'll be a strike that'll wipe them out. That sharply increases the danger of war. And remember, a war wipes out everyone. There's no escape. The country that launches a war will be destroyed, even if there's no retaliation, simply from the effects of nuclear winter. So here's something that's an enormous threat to the United States provides nothing in the way of deterrence. Undetectable submarines can have enough nuclear power to destroy everything. I mean, one uh, advanced submarine can kill, can destroy a couple hundred cities all over the world, you know, the, and they're un, basically undetectable. The enemy doesn't know where they are. So that alone, let alone the bomber forces, and way more that's needed for deterrent. The Titan missiles and something are mainly a threat to the United States. 
be much bit safer if you got rid of them, the military knows that, can't get it through Congress for good reason. Pentagon has been smart enough to distribute the sites for these in rural counties all over the world, all over the country, where they're a large part of the economy. Um, the neoliberal programs have pretty much devastated the rural economy. And these are among the few things that bring in jobs, commerce, profits, and so on. So if the local congressional representative is going to demand that they stay there, well, it happens to be very harmful. In fact, it may destroy us and it serves no purpose, but it's untouchable. Uh, many things like this. Uh, the military is, of course, there for a purpose. That's the way you ensure that uh, uh, you can dominate the world by the threat of military action. You have to look at, I mean, they're not ridiculous, they're stupid, they're not stupid, they think about these things. You take a look at the official policy, STRATCOM, Strategic Command, runs nuclear weapons programs. Well, they have documents, you can read them. Like you can, the most important of them there's from that I know of is in the Clinton era, 1995. It's called Essentials of Post-Cold War Deterrence. What do we do now that the Russians are gone? It's a problem. We can't say the Russians are coming. So uh, that's Clinton, 1995. It's worth reading. I've published parts of it over and over again, but nobody wants to look at them. But it's worth reading. What they say is, we have to maintain first strike capacity. We have to create what they call a national persona of being irrational and vindictive, because that'll frighten and terrify people. They'll be afraid to step on our toes. So look, irrational and vindictive, and nuclear weapons have to be the core of our strategy even though we have no intention of using them because they cast a shadow over conventional operations. Like if anyone tries to interfere with our intervention, aggression, subversion, we can wave nuclear weapons at them. So we'll be irrational, vindictive, waving the threat of nuclear weapons, and then we can get where we want. It's essentially the madman theory which is attributed to Nixon on very thin evidence, but here it is an official policy, Clinton policy. That's the liberals again. And the doomsday clock when Trump was in office was the closest it had ever been to midnight. Isn't that right? Sorry? The doomsday clock uh, when Trump was in office, that was the closest it had ever been to midnight, I believe? Yes. I didn't catch it. Sorry, the doomsday clock. The doomsday when Donald clock. Trump was in office, it was the closest oh. it had ever been to midnight, I think. The doomsday clock is the best simple characterization of the state of the world security system. It was established in uh, 1947, right after the atom bomb. At that point, it was seven minutes to midnight. Midnight means termination, we're finished. It's fluctuated over the years. Uh, during the Trump years, 
the analysts abandoned minutes too close to destruction, moved to seconds, 100 seconds to midnight. Less, because every January, last January, it was moved to 90 seconds to midnight. The two main threats are standard ones, growing threat of nuclear war and an unwillingness of the leadership class to deal with the impending disaster of climate destruction. So now we're 90 seconds to midnight, close it's ever been. Next January, it'll move forward again. Yeah. Um, I want to pivot a little bit here. Your linguistic theory of biolinguistic theorizes that the structure of language are biologically preset in the human mind. I was wondering, how outlandish is it to say that to, to theorize if we have the same types of presets um, that take that that takes into account our our, um, our need to protect our immediate environment. Does that make any sense? Push that too far. I mean, the, <laughs> the study of the structure of language and the structure of our cognitive systems can, in principle, tell us something about fundamental human nature but doesn't reach far enough to lead to particular conclusions about what happens in specific institutional structures. It's the institutional structures that have an overwhelming influence everywhere. I take, we should think about concrete cases. It's much more sensible. So let's say you're appointed to be the CEO of uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, biggest bank. That's you. You're now sitting in the executive office. A uh, request comes along from the fossil fuel industry from Exxon Mobil for a huge loan. Now you have a choice. If you give them the loan, you're helping destroy the lives of your grandchildren. Suppose you don't give them a loan. What happens? you're kicked out. Somebody else is brought in who will give them the loan. That's an institutional necessity. If you don't maximize profit and market share, you're out. Somebody else is in who will do it. So now you, James, sitting in that chair, what do you decide? Well, think what goes through your mind. He says, either I give them the loan or somebody else gives them the loan. And that somebody else won't be a nice guy like me. He'll be much more savage and brutal. So therefore, whatever little bit can be done, I'll, I better give them the loan. And that's what goes through your mind, something like that. It happens at just about every level of society, something like that. Take a look at the institutional structures, pursuit of profit, market share necessarily or else you throw it out it's a suicide pact okay. drug dealers have the same philosophy if i'm not going to sell it to them somebody else will right sorry i said drug dealers have the same philosophy if i don't sell it to them somebody else will so it just it's a capitalist That's idea the nature right? of the institutions mm -hmm. the problem is i mean there are particularly dangerous individuals like Trump, for example, 
or Henry Kissinger or others who are just dangerous people. But by and large, it's uh, institutional structures that set constraints. It's pretty much the same for the media. If you're a reporter and you start reporting the wrong things that are raising too many questions about power, you'll be called to the editor's office and told, you know, you're not really doing your job properly. Uh, maybe you should go off to the Metro desk for a couple of months. You know, everybody in the press has stories like that. I have two more questions before I let you go. Um, one of them I just thought of when you were talking about the, when, when we were discussing the military. The Nord Stream pipeline bombing, the, the sabotage um, in the Caspian Sea, I think it is. Where Do you agree with Seymour Hersh that that was an American operation? Well, well, it's kind of, it's a very interesting case. When the sabotage took place, if you read the world press, outside the West, little Western propaganda bubble, everybody just took for granted. They just describe it as an, as a U.S. sabotage operation because it's obvious. Nobody else had the capacity. Nobody else had the motive. Biden had openly stated that if Russia invades Ukraine, we'll destroy the pipeline. When the pipeline was destroyed, they just exalted total euphoria. I mean, you don't need Seymour Hersh's investigation. It was just taken for granted by everybody. Well, it didn't prove it, of course, but just overwhelmingly obvious. Who else could it possibly be? Well, get inside the propaganda bubble where we are. The first thing that was said, it was obviously the Russians. I mean, it's outlandish. Why should the Russians bomb one of their main capital investments, which they were relying on, crucially, for their relations with Europe? Uh, claim is, well, they wanted to punish Europe by cutting off the gas. You can do that by flipping a switch. Yeah. You don't have to blow up your biggest capital investment. So this was, that was the main story, remains the main story. I mean, it's kind of beyond insanity. Outside the, the United States, people laugh, you know. Then comes the propaganda system. It's very clever. If you, a good propaganda, it's like the fossil fuel industry. You don't deny the facts. You cast doubt. So read the press. It's quite interesting. What what you read is articles saying, well, it's not certain that it was the Russians. There's some doubt about it. See how open-minded we are? We're carrying out debate about whether it was the Russians or not. Uh, maybe it was not. Maybe it was a bunch of Ukrainians in a sailboat. You know, let's look into that. You know, so that shows what an open and free country we are. We really debate these things, but you don't, but it's within a set of presuppositions. You don't discuss the possibility of what's overwhelmingly likely, namely that the US blew it up for its own purposes, just as it said it would. Don't discuss that. So let's have a lively debate, narrowly constrained by certain fixed assumptions, then it looks like we're free and open, but you instill the assumptions. 
not by assertion, just by presupposition. That's clever propaganda, like the fossil fuel companies, the tobacco companies, others. You don't deny the facts. If you put the fact, the, if you even discuss the major issues, it opens it up for discussion. You don't want to do that. Put them in the background. Talk about something else. That's how optimistic? How, how optimistic are you uh, about our planet's future? I know that's a very broad question. I know a lot of things have to happen. I'm just kind of curious because I'm not very optimistic. I don't think that humans learn their lessons very quickly, especially collectively and especially 8 billion of us all trying to get on the same page. So I'm just kind of wondering what your optimism is like these days. Basically, you have two choices. You can say everything's hopeless. I give up. Help ensure that the worst will happen. Or you can grasp the opportunities that exist and they do exist, and maybe you can make it a better world. It's not a very hard choice. So you're optimistic. You know that there are opportunities, so you grasp them. Um, first of all, what's your dog's name before I let you go? Because he, he, he really wants you to go. What's your dog's name? No. My dog? I can't say it, Olivia rushed to the door because they're sitting right under my desk, oh, both okay. of them. And there's a couple of sounds that they respond to, like their names. Yeah, okay, no problem. Um, well, listen, um, I'm going to let you go. It was, it was amazing talking to you again. This is our third time. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but this show, my very first episode was Noam Chomsky two years ago. So you were you kicked off the show and uh, kicked off the the actual podcast series and uh, and it was amazing to have you here today. Thank you very much for joining us and uh, and hopefully we'll see you again soon. Be with you. Glad what you're doing. That's Thank what very much. optimism kind Thank of you, thing sir. you're doing. I appreciate that. You have a good night. Very good to see you. Very good to see you as well. Oh. Sometimes I feel really uh, not not as intelligent as I'd like. <laughs> out of a, I just I totally try to like sound smart. Here, I'm going to read the question again, just because I I think uh, I I want to own my stupidity. Sometimes you're linguistic. <laughs> I can't remember what he said, but it, it, his answer was the best because he was just like that's that's like the biggest reach I ever heard, James. Your linguistic theory of biolinguistics theorizes that the structure of language are biologically preset in the human mind. Is it possible that the survival of our planet is also preset? Oh, fuck, I'm stupid. Anyways, um, I love having Noam Chomsky on, and uh, and I hope you did too. It, it is, I'm not, I'm no longer nervous when I talk to him. We now kind of know each other. I call him Noam in emails. He calls me James. Um, and my, he's one of my favorite guests because. I can just ask a question and basically just sit back and listen to someone a lot smarter than me give an answer. And um, I, I think the interview went well uh, be, because of that. Uh, I, you know, I, I definitely didn't want to get into any type of back and forth. He's 94 years old and he's literally dedicated his life to try to show us what bad people do to us. Um. That is the kind of man that I think you're supposed to look up to. 
even if you disagree with them. And there's a lot of people, I, I got a bunch of emails and uh, like Facebook messages from people who are right wing and, you know, calling him a fool and everything. And um, yeah, it, shut up. I, the, the, guy, the guy is so smart. He, he's still chugging along. It was funny because um, he asked me to enable captions. And I didn't realize it was because of his hearing because he, whenever he sends me emails, he sends me this in, in really big font. And he, you know, and so I thought his eyesight was bad. So I guess his hearing is going too. But that brain, I don't think anything's ever going to conquer that brain. Um, <clears throat> he is, uh, he's probably my favorite guest, I would say. I think, um, I think I learned something. I think uh, I wanted to talk a little bit more about um, some of the more practical solutions. Like I heard Bob Paulin, who was his co-author in the Green New Deal, and uh, talk about how, you know, even retro, like he was, he was coming at, uh, he was speaking at uh, UMass, University of Massachusetts, and how that building is, uh, is, a, is a net zero building when it comes to uh, carbon footprint because of all the retrofitting. And, you know, I kind of want, I, I wish I would have thought about it at the time because I'm just thinking of it now. Like if there was a way that we could figure out how to make people rich by protecting the environment, you know, is that one way to go? Like if, if all of these evil people who control the world are motivated by dollars, can we figure out a way to just keep them rich? <laughs> Maybe then they'll finally move. Because I, uh, despite the fact that I am not optimistic, um, I, th I think it would be a good idea for, for all of us to just kind of take a look at what our lifestyles are. And, and, and at least at the end of the day, when we watch the nuclear winter provide the shade we've been longing for all these many years, we may be able to say, I didn't do that. You know, I did, I did my part. My, my wife and kids no longer live in my house. My thermostat's at 65. I actually don't put it there because I'm an environmentalist. I put it there because I like being cold and then trying to get warm so much more than being warm and trying to cool off. But apparently I just saved like three tons of fossil fuels or, or actually I guess we, we run by uh, uh, propane in this house. It's really expensive too. But things like that. Um, I think I'm going to try to educate myself a little bit more on this subject because uh, it was a fun rabbit hole to go down um, when I was preparing for this interview. And, uh, you know, Noam Chomsky is, is the kind of guy you need to prepare for. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of things to sort of be optimistic about. But there's so much more not to be when you think of who holds the power and who holds the money and all that kind of stuff. And so I, I wish I had an answer. Um, I don't, except for maybe just individually, we can all kind of do a better job and then ignore all the people that say that climate change is a hoax because that's just silly. My big thanks to Noam Chomsky. I'm going to try to do a tomorrow a, uh, a sort of post-Earth Day wrap-up show. Karima Saad's going to join us. Um, I'm going to get a couple other people to join us as well just to talk about what uh, Professor Chomsky had to say and uh, and maybe, you know, uh, expand the conversation a little bit. You know, because every day's Earth Day, dude, you know? I promise never to say that again. We'll see you next time on Black Ball. Black
Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.